is Join the Dots, the podcast about the impacts of everyday choices for our health, wallets and planet. Welcome to our new series, The Mystifying Expertise. While making our regular podcast, we are connecting with experts in many fields, some familiar, some less so. In this series, we'll learn about what they do and how they see the world. first episode, Sabina, who is one of the three co-hosts of Join the Dots, is our guest. We start with her because she was very reluctant to be called an environmental scientist, and we wanted to understand why and hear what she really does behind this catch-all term. So, Sabina, hello. Hello again. Good to be here. What is your field if it is not environmental science? Or shall I say fields? Uh, by education, I first studied chemistry and then oceanography. I was a marine geochemist, somebody that looks at the chemistry in rocks, sediments, or the ocean to understand, say, climate and the history. But now I'm not sure what I am. I'm an environmental scientist, but really I work on cross-disciplinary science and engineering to help address how our actions and choices affect human health and the environment. So often I'm a science broker or a science translator because I help my clients and my collaborators link what we measure as scientists to what we can achieve as a society. In a way, I'm everything and nothing. <laughs> That's a good place to be. Um, so why did you choose marine chemistry and how did you find yourself in this mix of topics that you work with? Well, for much of my childhood, I was going to be a poet and philosopher, <laughs> but and that was my rebelling against a family of engineers and my love of language. But when I was young, I think third grade, I had a teacher who taught us about environmental issues. I mean, this is the early 70s, so she was ahead of her time. We had a newsletter, and I wrote articles about DDT and pelicans and about glass on beaches. And we had a paper drive where we gave people seeds when they donated recyclables. This was long before these things were fashionable. In fact, our group won a President's Environmental Award. Which president was that? Richard Nixon, who, to be fair, started the US EPA had signed my environmental award. So, you know, on my environmental CV, it starts in about 1970. So then there was this show on TV about some women, I think they were called the Sea Mates, who lived for a time in an underwater lab. I can't even remember who they were or what it was, but this really excited me. And I wanted to do something to protect the ocean there was always sort of an intended path towards marine and environmental science. It wasn't a direct path, but I got there. Because you lived by the sea as well, right? Well, it was a a bike ride from the sea. We could follow a river trail to the beach. So I did grow up playing in tide pools on the beach and we would cycle in the summer. It was about 16 miles, which seemed an enormous distance to us at the time. 
It's very idyllic. So how did you get to where you are now, where you work across topics, or is marine still the focus of your current advisory work? Well, you know, most people, as they move through their careers, what you get your PhD or your degree in, it's really just a license to think. So, you know, <laughs> many of us evolve. So I did my PhD in rather pure oceanography. Um, even when I applied to my grad school, which was Scripps Institution of Oceanography, I was told not to mention that I wanted to go off and do environmental work <laughs> because applied work then, differently than now, was considered beneath them. They did fundamental science. As a postdoc, I actually cold called local labs and ended up connecting with a U.S. Navy marine environmental lab that wasn't far away and got a postdoctoral fellowship to work there. After six months, they hired me as a full-time scientist. And there I worked on both carrying out research and advising and representing the government on marine environmental issues for about a decade. Then um, we moved to the UK and I started doing independent consulting. Although this is an island, the ocean feels much further away. And I started diversifying and learning more landscape and freshwater issues, following a thread of sediment as the particles under the ocean or in rivers and ponds as the vector for contaminants and as a pathway for connecting the land and the water. So is sediment the soil that gets carried off with water into the sea? There are countless definitions of sediments, and I've actually sat in workshops where I spent half a day defining our terms. The difference between soil and sediment is that sediments are under or transported by water. Now, soil scientists argue that soil evolves naturally in situ, in place, as you get rock and minerals to sort of develop into soil while sediment is transported and deposited. But really, it's a pathway of communication between what we do on land and what happens in water because often contaminants and nutrients and pathogens connect to particles and they move through the system. So it can cause problems of contamination. It's also essential habitat for systems. It's sand, for example, is essential for some organisms. Mud in wetlands is essential for a lot of different organisms. So it's a carrier of contaminants. It's also an essential component for coastal protection. Well, I was going to ask you next, what keeps you in this field of work? But I could see you beaming when you're talking about the sediment. <laughs> so sediment must be a reason why you're staying in this field. Um, and I love that phrase, licensed to think. How lovely. I didn't know you wanted to be a poet and a philosopher growing up, but I can see the impact of that in the way that you phrase things. It's lovely. It is true that sediment or mud is a connecting thread. I mean, I, I often joke that mud is my life. I've been introduced at international conferences as the mud queen, <laughs> and we've called ourselves the mud maidens when I had a research lab that was largely um, women scientists. 
But what I really enjoy is interesting projects where we're trying to find order and complexity. I already talked to you about that tension between beneficial and detrimental issues about sediment quality and quantity. And it's true that whenever we're trying to solve real environmental problems, how we want to manage our land and waterscapes, we're dealing with really complex problems, what we call wicked problems, because there's no clear one right answer. We have to apply normative or value judgments to how we balance these decisions. So I'm very interested in using tools and frameworks to break down complicated problems And I've been lucky enough to play with interesting problems and interesting data sets to try to figure out frameworks to do that. I find messy problems quite sexy. (laughs) But that's actually maybe one of our common areas of interest when you said there are value judgments involved in these wicked problems. And then you want to break down, you want to provide evidence so you can sort of steer people away from value judgments because value judgments vary. I'd have to disagree with you, Ed I believe that societal decisions, how we manage environments, how we respond to problems, these are all value judgments. These are all societal decisions. As scientists, we don't make those decisions. We provide information about the consequences of decisions and the trade-offs. So what we try to do is show them the impacts to things they value of various choices. So we support science-informed decision-making. Where we can help, I think, is making that systematic and transparent, whether we vote or whether we have representatives that, that make those decisions. Value decisions need to be made. Yes, I think you're right. Thank you for disagreeing with me because it clarified what I wanted to say. You're welcome. The analysis that any expert does doesn't replace the value judgment, but makes it more transparent. So if you don't make the analysis, you don't know what value judgments are going into making that decision. And you most often don't know their implications. Um, So our work is have a systematic look at the decisions and judgments involved and make them transparent and measurable and show the trade-offs, yes. It's very interesting, actually, because anyone listening to you from my field of economics, if they listen to just that excerpt, they would think you're an economist. (laughs) Isn't that that great? (laughs) But yeah, you use different tools to try and meet the same objective. My God, that's a revelation for me. Well, I think people that are doing fundamental science in a specific field might see it differently. A lot of what I do is try to figure out how we translate these things. I don't tend to monetize. I, I don't tend to do economic analysis, although sometimes I hand off to economists. But we we do spend a lot of time, usually when we're starting a project, helping people understand what decision it is they're trying to make and what drives that decision, whether it's regulations or whether it's it's societal expectations, and then advising about the implications of using various scientific tools in the context of that. So again, it's translation. You translate to more economic (laughs) things. I translate to more technical. But there are different steps along that chain. 
Okay, actually, I was going to ask you what is the biggest challenge you face um, in your work? Well, for me, one of the biggest challenges has been, especially in environmental work, accepting that this is a slow process. When I was young scientists, I used to deliver data by the kilogram and wonder why it didn't make any difference <laughs> to the final decision, which really led me to the path of trying to understand how we translate and make science relevant. But I didn't figure that my science made a difference until a stranger was lecturing me about my own work. New approaches take time to diffuse into people's thinking. So patience is the greatest challenge. Patience and urgency, because things become more urgent. But we're talking about changing the way we manage our world right now. And uh, baby steps. Yes, urgency, but baby steps. We need we need giant babies that take giant steps, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. Patience. So what is one thing that works well for you that you think will also work for others, especially in the context of making choices and understanding their implications? Well, I think the tools we use to break down complex problems translate to life, as I hope we show in the podcast when we talk about different ways of thinking and organizing information. Whatever choice we're making in life, whether it's to have the chicken or the fish, which car you want to buy, or how we clean up a contaminated site, we're considering trade-offs. There are costs and benefits or desirable and undesirable impacts. Um, when we do a large-scale cleanup, we also have many, many dump trucks, say, of dirt, and we use a lot of energy, so there are greenhouse impacts. So we're always balancing choices. And I think the more we do that consciously and transparently, and think about how we decide between complicated things, the better we avoid unintended consequences and we see opportunities we might not have seen if we weren't thinking explicitly. So I think a lot of these scientific tools apply in everyday life, whether it's, mm. it's a consumer choice or who you're going to go out with. Hearing you talk about the trucks, I, I remembered I didn't actually ask you what you do on a day to day for, for a project. Can you give us some examples of the kind of projects that you work on? Oh, gosh. I mean, they can be quite diverse. A project I've worked on in recent years started with a contaminated site in downtown Portland, Oregon, where the sediment at the bottom in a river in a historically industrial area was very contaminated. And there are different ways you can manage that. You can either remove hundreds of thousands of truckloads of sediment and put it in a landfill. You can use different technologies to clean it up. You can try to contain some of the sediment so that contaminants can't get to fish and the public. And usually we look at a mixture of those. 
Other times I look at if you're dredging or removing sediments from a waterway, say to build a harbor or keep a river navigable. If that's clean, traditionally, that's been dumped in the ocean or used as a resource. But if it's contaminated, you can't do that. You need to contain it or clean it up. Deciding whether something is contaminated is a complicated issue where we use a range of chemical, biological, and Mm. policy tools. And I've done a lot of work advising the trade-offs and choices in those sort of regulatory frameworks. I worked in Venice Lagoon where they wanted to use slightly contaminated sediment for habitat restoration. So I built frameworks to look at the results of a lot of ecological research to help frame the question, what are the trade-offs inherent in that? So there are a lot of choices to cleaning a contaminated area and sometimes you're trying to find the sort of best of a bad bunch. That's the phrase. (laughs) So we shouldn't pollute in the first place. Well, exactly. I mean, remediation, which is what we call the cleanup of contaminated sites, isn't really a sustainable process. It uses energy, it moves things around, it releases contaminants, it results in trucks and noise and pollution. But once Pandora is out of the box, once we've polluted sites, we look at solutions that try to find the maximum risk Mm. reduction with the minimum undesirable impact. Mm. Other projects we've looked at are how you manage, say, agriculture and landscapes to minimize soil loss to rivers. Um, Okay, so my final question for you, Sabina, is um, since you are involved in this podcast, why? Well, it was really an accident. I wasn't seeking to do such a thing. Um, I mean, in my position as a senior editor on a journal, they encourage us to do podcasts. And I told them I was too old for such a thing. But it was it was a happy accident. I, I've been lucky to have publicly funded scholarships and fellowships throughout my education. I was a civil servant for a decade. So I believe the public owns part of my brain, and I want to give back (laughs) in any way I can, hopefully giving them a return on the investment. I love that public owns part of your brain. I'm so glad you think that way. It's a pleasure talking to you, Sabina. Good talking to you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Tara Uygur on podcast production and Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. Listener.